We're in uh, Revelation 19, and we're moving quickly toward the conclusion of the Revelation. And everybody said, no, 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 don't, don't, don't say amen. Uh, tonight, we're going to come to a victory chapter, <clears throat> and won't that feel nice? After one cataclysmic event, after another cataclysmic event, after another cataclysmic event, uh, all of these different characters that are functioning during the tribulation, all the evil that's happening, uh, the Babylonian empire, the uh, Babylonian religion, all of those things that have been so dark and, and ugly. We come to a chapter in chapter 19 where we begin to see a break in all that darkness, and we begin to see some light uh, to shine through. We're moving toward the time when Jesus is going to come again, and um, he's going to make all things right. Won't that be a great day? when Jesus comes and he makes all things right. And so in Revelation chapter 19, we, we pick up in verse 1. It says, after these things, so let's stop there, after what things? The things we've just been reading about in chapter 17 and 18. Remember in chapter 17, we were talking about religious Babylon, uh, that religious political system that the Antichrist rides to power. In chapter 18, we were talking about Babylon, the city, literally, the rebuilt city, from which the Antichrist will rule. And both of those are destroyed. Both of those systems, that system and that uh, city are ultimately destroyed. He says, after these things, after seeing those visions about these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. Now, it's interesting to note that uh, the only place you find the word hallelujah is here in the Revelation. It means praise to God. After all of the chapters of the judgment we've been reading about, uh, we open this chapter hearing about praise that's being given to God. It's found four times, only four times in the New Testament. All of them are in the first six verses of this chapter. And, uh, of course, what we're talking about here is this praise that's rising up to God. Most likely this praise is coming from the martyred saints. You remember back earlier in the Revelation, we talked about the saints that were under the altar and they were praying, God, when are you going to settle this matter? When are you going to bring vengeance on our enemies? When are you going to avenge our blood? Remember that? And uh, here you see these now turning their voices in praise because they see that the end is in sight. And they begin to give glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. Verse 2 and 3. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Hallelujah. And her smoke rises up forever and forever. You remember originally the great harlot was a reference to just the religious system of the first half of the tribulation, but here it's the picture of the entire political, economic, religious system, all of it tied together that was used by the Antichrist to deceive the nations. And they see the corruption of this whole system. They see the fornication of this whole system. And they know that they're about to be avenged. These saints that lost their lives are about to be avenged for the blood of his servants. They're about to be avenged. 
And so they sing, Alleluia, and her smoke rises up forever and ever. Verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And we've met these as well before, haven't we? The 24 elders, you remember what they represented earlier, chapter 4? They represented the church-age saints um, that are there in the presence of God. And what do those 24 elders do earlier on? They fall down in the presence of Christ, and they throw their crowns at his feet. And then the four living creatures we know are angelic beings. Uh, and these 24 elders, these four living beings, these four living uh, angelic beings, they, they worship God. And they say, amen, hallelujah. And the praise just keeps going on. The praise just keeps rising because what has been a long seven years is now about to come to a close. Uh, verse 5. I didn't skip verse 4, did I? Verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. Now, whose voice is this? I mean, joining the voices of the martyred saints are the church-age saints and the angelic creatures, but this is another voice. Although it's not specifically identified, we, we have to assume that this is another angelic voice. Again, listen to it. Then a voice, a voice, came from the throne saying, praise our God. He didn't say praise God as if it was God speaking at this moment. He says praise our God. So in addition to the, the, the tribulation, martyr tribulation saints and the church age saints and the angelic creatures, here is another voice who joins in, most likely another one of the created beings of God, the angels of God, who's saying, all right, let's all gather our voices together. You, you know what Nathan was doing here a minute ago? He was trying to get you to find the right page and... To, to, you know, to marshal everybody together and to sing everybody together at the same time and we're all you know, lifting our voices in praise to God as one, that's what you find going on. You find uh, these angelic creatures. You find uh, the, uh, the uh, martyred saints. They're all marshalling their voices together so that they can sing with one voice a praise that goes directly to God. And most likely... The one who's calling for this praise in verse 5 is that of another angelic being because he says, praise our God. He didn't say praise God. He says, praise our God. And then he refers to the servants who fear and uh, who are small and great. Verse 6, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, again, you, you see the choir being marshaled together. You see the voices being asked to join in. You see everybody coming together to sing the same thing. Hallelujah, for the Lord omnipotent reigns. You see the praise that's rising up. But what's interesting is he says it's like a great multitude or the sound of many waters. What do you think he's emphasizing? He's emphasizing exactly what you think. He's emphasizing the volume He's, he's emphasizing the, the magnitude of this ever-increasing praise rising up that goes to God, right? Um, you've probably been at a football game when the stadium was completely full and 
you know, some big play was made or there was some play to be made on the field and everybody's up cheering, trying to keep the opponents from being able to score a touchdown or be able to make the first down. And the sound can be what? It can be almost deafening, can it? It can be almost deafening. And that's the idea here. Uh, you know, we're marshalling all of these people. There's different voices. Come, join us. We're going to sing praises to God. Hallelujah. Let's lift up our voices to God, one after the other. And it's so loud. It's like a great multitude. It's the sound of many waters. It's thunderous. As you're listening to all of this, it's, it's almost overwhelming. The sound is so great and so big. And when you get to verses 7 to 10... You're going to be introduced to something that isn't found anywhere else in the Scripture. It's only found here in the Revelation. It has to do with the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Did you know there's going to be a marriage in a marriage supper? Did you know that? He's going to talk about it. It's a part of this great victory uh, song as a part of this praise rising up to God as a part of marshalling everybody's voices together he interjects here something that he wants you to know about that happens in the heavenlies verse 7 let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready now, the, inter- the event that's introduced here is mentioned nowhere else in scripture And from the other New Testament scriptures, we can safely conclude that the wife here are the redeemed that make up the church age. Uh, We're going to see that in a little while by what they're wearing. And you'll remember earlier that the church age saints were wearing this white linen. You'll see that in a moment. But you can deduce what's going on here is that this marriage is taking place between Christ and his church, these church age saints. And it's going to be a glorious and wonderful wedding. Just, just to sort of give you an idea of what a Jewish wedding was like, first there was a betrothal. That's when the parents of a boy and a girl got together and they agreed that their children, their son and daughter, would marry one another. And there was a bride price that was paid uh, from the groom to the bride's parents. Uh, and that was the guarantee that they were going to be married. That Uh, that betrothal period was as official as a wedding. Once they were betrothed, it was as if they were married. To get out of it, you had to divorce. You had to have a bill of divorce. It's not like today where you just take off the the engagement ring and sit it aside and say, okay, I call it off. It's not that that way. In a Jewish wedding, it it required a divorce. If you had been betrothed together, it required a divorce. And so you find first a betrothal. Then you find that following the betrothal, uh, there was at least a year, maybe sometimes more, depending on the age of the couple, and then the groom would come and he would take his bride to the house that he had built for her. Uh, Are you beginning to get the picture? Uh, Who's going to do that for the church? What what do we call that event? We call that the, starts with an R, we call it the rapture of the church. When, when, the, when the groom comes for his bride, his church, and he takes us to what he has been, what, what's John 14, 1 to 6 say? Um, Let not your heart be troubled. You, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that wonderful? 
So there's the betrothal. We trust in the Lord Jesus. We become a part of the bride. But there's coming a day when the groom is going to come in the clouds. He's going to call out his bride. He's going to take us back to the place that he's prepared for us in heaven. And then thirdly, there's the wedding ceremony. And following the wedding ceremony, there's a feast that lasts a week in length. Now, when you talk here about the marriage of the lamb, you're seeing this unfold. We've become a part of the bride because we trusted in Jesus. The rapture of the church, the groom comes and takes his bride away to the place he's prepared for them. And then there's going to be a wedding ceremony. There first has to be some preparation. We call that the judgment seat of Christ. But once that preparation has taken place, then there's going to be this marriage. And following the marriage, there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll talk about that in a moment, the marriage supper of the Lamb itself. But all of this is being depicted by a Jewish wedding in the traditions of of a Jewish wedding that's unfolding before us. And so do you get that picture? That's what's happening here. And it's what he's talking about when he talks about a marriage. Um, Isn't that how the church is likened uh, in Ephesians? uh, where It it likens the husband to, uh, to Christ and the wife to the church, right? Are you all with me? It's how, it's how the church is like and how Christ is like. He's the husband. We're, we're the wife. And so he comes and he takes us away. And so following this judgment, coming to the end of all of this judgment, there's going to be this marriage and there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now the question comes, when will the marriage supper take place? For the entirety of that seven years that we've been caught out and call, called into the presence of the Lord to be with him, uh, as his bride, there's the judgment seat that's been going on, and we're be- being given rewards uh, for the things that we've done that glorified him, that were deserving of rewards. But sometime toward the end of that uh, tribulation period, while we're in the heavenlies, there's a marriage that happens, and then there's going to be a marriage supper. But when does the marriage supper take place? And that's the question. Uh, when does the marriage supper take place? Well, there's two different thoughts about that. One is that it takes place immediately after the wedding, and it takes place in the heavenlies. But I'm convinced, at least from my studies, that the marriage supper itself doesn't take place until the kingdom begins. And I'll explain to you why. But first, let me read to you the words of Charles Ryrie. You know, when, you, when you're not real smart, you, you'd lean on people that are real smart, right? So I'm going to lean on Charles Ryrie. He says, the wedding is followed by a supper, and a special blessing is pronounced upon those who are called to the supper. These are the friends of the bridegroom. And one immediately recalls John 3, 29, where John the Baptist is called a friend of the bridegroom. These guests must be redeemed people who are not members of the church, the body of Christ. So why do you think it can't happen in heaven? In other words, the husband comes to take the bride away, and we're all caught up into his presence. Uh, There's that purification of the judgment seat that takes place, and we're now prepared as his bride to be married to him. And at some point in that heavenly scene, we, we become his bride. We become married to him in that sense of the word. And then there's this wedding. There's this wedding feast. Why would you not have it there? Well, because there are invited guests uh, to this wedding feast that are not of the church. So if it's, 
If it's if there's going to be people there who are not a part of the church, then it's got to happen after uh, Jesus has returned. You follow what I'm saying? Are, are you with me? Be patient with me. I'm trying. In order to have the other people there that are not a part of the church, you got to get back here, right? And who are those people? They're the Old Testament saints, and they're the tribulation saints. I think that what you're going to read on here in just a moment is that uh, we're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb, but I don't think that comes till after Jesus has settled everything here. The tribulation comes to an end. The kingdom has begun, and the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, and everybody are gathered to see and be a part of this marriage supper of the Lamb. Chapter 9, verse 8. And to her, that's the bride, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. You remember that description earlier of the church? Clothed in fine linen. It's clean, it's bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, you've got to understand there's two different uh, ways to look at righteousness. There is that positional righteousness that's given to us when we're saved. Uh, we are clothed in whose righteousness? It's salvation. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But there is a practical righteousness that we're working out every single day and that's going to be, it's going to be tested at the judgment seat. That practical righteousness is, you know, the works that we're doing in this world, whether they are deserving and worthy of reward. And if they are, he says, these are the fine linen, clean and bright, the fine linen that are the righteous acts of the saints. And the bride will be wearing these righteous acts. This is not our positional righteousness. This is our practical righteousness will be clothed not only in the righteousness that he's given us, but in the wedding garment of our own righteousness in rewarded deeds. <clears throat> it's the reason why you have to give attention to how you live your life. You say, well, once I get out of hell, that's all that matters. Mm, no, that's not all that matters. It's all that matters for you getting into heaven when you've trusted in Jesus, <clears throat> but you're intended to go on and live a life where you're seeking to honor and please the Lord and live in a way that brings glory to his name and to do works that are worthy of reward that'll make up this practical righteousness that you'll be wearing at that wedding. And uh, that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about in chapter 19, verse 8. See it again, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. They've been through the judgment seat, everything that could be done away, the wood, hay, and stubble, that's all gone. She's arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so you get it? We're living in the church age as his bride. We're doing works of righteousness, deeds of righteousness that will be tested at the judgment seat. One day the groom will come for us and we the bride will be caught up to meet him. Our works will be judged as to their worthiness. Um, we'll be clothed in those fine linen of righteous acts that we have done that have survived the judgment seat and there'll be a marriage that takes place. And a little later, in my estimation, after the at the beginning of the millennial period or right after the tribulation ends, there'll be a marriage supper. And the Old Testament saints and tribulation saints will all be invited to be a part of that marriage supper. Verse 9. Did I just lose you altogether? Verse 9. 
Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, wait a minute. Those that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. You wouldn't, you wouldn't call the bride to her marriage supper, would you? I mean, she's already an invited guest, right? Who would you be calling? That's come back to Charles Ryrie. You're, you're inviting the Old Testament saints. You're inviting the tribulation saints to come and to witness this marriage supper. It's going to be a great rejoicing. That's the point. It's going to be a great rejoicing. As all of the angelic beings and all of the hosts of heaven are being marshaled together to lift up their voices and give praise to the God of heaven, there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be nothing but joy, nothing but peace, uh, nothing uh, but pleasure. What a great day that will be. Chapter 19, verse 10. And I fell at his feet. That's the one who's been talking to John. I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You see what happens? John gets overtaken in emotion. Don't, doesn't that happen sometimes? You're, you're seeing a scene or you're in a situation um, this morning. Thinking about the blood of Jesus, I just got overtaken with emotion. And uh, thinking about what he's done for me. Thinking about leaving this life, I have a life beyond this life, but it's not because of what I've done, it's because of what he's done for me. It's because of the blood that he has spilled on my behalf. And you've been in those situations where you're just overtaken by the emotion of what's going on around you, and all of the heavenly host is singing the praise of God, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's going to be a marriage. There's going to be a marriage supper, a great celebration. And John just gets caught up in the emotion of the moment, and he falls at the feet of this angelic creature who's delivering him this vision. But it's important to note, he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of of prophecy. I just want to make clear something. Prophecy is not for our morbid, uh, for our morbid personalities that just like to see the chronology of how things all end. Prophecy is always intended to do what? Point us to Jesus. Make us love Jesus more. Make us praise Jesus more. Cause us to recognize Jesus more. Jesus is doing all of this. Jesus has done all of this. Jesus makes all of this possible. Jesus is taking us into his presence. Jesus is the one who's prepared the, the place for his bride to come home. Jesus is the one who's made it possible, clothed them in his righteousness. Jesus is the one who sets up the marriage and sets up the marriage supper. Jesus is the one who's being praised. Alleluia, alleluia. In other words, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. It's, it's very much what <clears throat> uh, the Gospel of John says. By the way, if you ever have trouble trying to figure out, do, do you believe in the Trinity or not? Just, just read John 14, 15, 16, and 17. And you tell me how you can get uh, one God and not in three persons and read those, three, those four chapters together. I don't think you can do it. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? 
What will the Holy Spirit, how will the Holy Spirit guide us? He will guide us into all the truth. And who is it that he always points us to? The Holy Spirit never makes a, a, a show of himself. That's why I know a lot of the things that we see in some parts of Christendom that make a lot of the Holy Spirit in a way that, in my estimation, dishonors the Holy Spirit aren't of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't make notice of himself. Who does the Holy Spirit always point to? The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. Not only does the Holy Spirit do that, prophecy should always do that. It should always point us to Jesus. If you're just in it for the morbid details of how it's all going to end so you can make everybody else in your life as miserable as you are miserable, then you've missed the point of prophecy. The point of prophecy is to make you want Jesus and make you want to see Jesus more than you want to see anything else in your life. Amen? Make you long for Jesus. I don't know about you. I long for Jesus. The older I get, the more of these kind of things that I have to deal with. I had a funeral in Inez on Tuesday. Went to, the, went to the visitation, of course, on Monday night um, in Inez and came back home and then drove back on Tuesday. We had a beautiful service. And, um, and at the end, uh, I, I, was, I had been, this is the, this is the husband of, of a wife that I have buried there. <clears throat> so I knew where we were going. And I said, can I ride with y'all? And they said, yes, absolutely. And so, um, and I don't know why I'm telling you this story. I said, can I ride with y'all? And I got in the hearse. This is a four-wheel drive hearse. The roads are, this, this particular road we're going to go up is wet. It's got potholes all in it. It goes at an angle like this, up to the top of the, up to the side of the mountain, up to the top of the mountain. And I'm, there's a handle right here, and I'm holding onto that handle. I buckled myself in and pulled it tight. Um, he threw it into some gear. I don't know what gear it was. We were the first ones up, and he pulled all the way up. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about uh, you know, a block. I'm talking about two or three blocks up, lengthwise, just up and up and up. I got a picture. I took a picture from up there. You're looking right down on the town of Inez. So nobody wants to see it? Here's the point of that. I've been to enough gravesides in a lot of places that if I never have to go to another graveside, I can be happy. I can be a happy man. I don't ever want to have to lay anybody, anybody's body to rest ever again. I'll be a happy man. If Jesus comes today, I'm a happy man. And that's what he's saying. I mean, what you're supposed to think of when you think of the prophecy and all the details and all the events is not the morbidity of things that are happening around you. It's to realize Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Your Savior is coming. The husband is coming. And he's coming for you because he loves you. He loves you. Verse 11. Did I miss verse 10? No, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
Now, we've seen a white horse before earlier in the Revelation, back in chapter 6. And on that occasion, we noted, noted that it was the Antichrist who was coming on that white horse. He came to deceive, if you remember. He came with an arrow. He came with a bow, but no arrow, if you remember. But now there's another white horse that comes out of the heavens, and there's someone different sitting on this white horse. And who do you think it is? The rider is none other than Jesus Christ himself. You're going to see that in verse 13, but just let me go ahead and tell you in advance. I'm going to give you the end of the story before we get the story. Before we get to the end of the story, Jesus is the rider on this horse, and what's he coming to do? He's coming to make war against the enemies that have risen up against him. What will the Antichrist do? We'll study this in a coming chapter, but he's going to gather the nations together uh, for what will be the, the war. I call it the war of Armageddon. And... Uh, Jesus is coming now. You see him coming. He's coming to that battle. He's coming to that war. And what's he going to do? He's going to judge and he's going to make war. He's going to do it in righteousness because he's faithful and true. Nobody else can do this but Jesus. If we make war, we'll always have problems with mixed motivations, but not Jesus. He never has that problem. Did you notice as well? Um, well, I haven't got to it yet, have I? Verse 12, look at verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That's, 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 a, that's the vision of, a, of judgment that's coming. His eyes like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now, here's the reality. Nobody will know what that name is until we get there. Right? I mean, if John doesn't tell us what it is, he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And if Jesus doesn't re reveal it to us, we won't know it. But the only way we're going to know it is if we're with him. But what I want you to see is that he comes not only with this flame of fire in his eyes, but he comes with these multiple crowns on his head. You know why? Because he's Lord of lords. Because he's king of kings. Jesus is said to have many crowns because he's king of kings and he's the universal. He has universal dominion over the nations of the earth. He doesn't just wear the crown of one nation. He wears the crown of all the nations. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And you want to know who he is? Who is this riding on this white horse this time? Verse 13, he was clothed with a, with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called, here it is, the Word of God. The Word of God. Now, note that his robe is dipped in blood isn't a reference to his sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary. His robe being dipped in blood means that because he's coming in judgment, this is the blood of his enemies. It's dipped in their blood because he's going to destroy the enemies that rise up against him, and he's called the Word of God. You realize that words are for the purpose of expression? And Jesus expresses completely the mind, the will, and the purpose of God the Father. Do you get that? Words are for the purpose of expression, right? I cannot know what you're thinking or what you're like if you don't, what, express it with words for the most part. Jesus is called the Word here, the, 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 the Word of God here. He is the perfect expression, complete expression of the mind, the will, and the purpose of God the Father. Isn't that what John 1.18 says? Sometime look it up. That's what John 1.18 indicates. 
He has come to reveal. Jesus came to reveal <clears throat> to us the Father. Verse 14. In the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who, who did we say those were? Those were the saints. Those were the, that was the church. They've been through the purification process. They've been rewarded. They now have not only the positional righteousness given to them by Christ, they now have the righteousness of their works that they're wearing. They're white and clean, and they follow him on white horses. I've only ridden a horse a couple of times. I've never ridden a white horse. So maybe I better go get practiced, right? How many of you ride horses? How many of you like to ride horses? Um, I love to watch horses run, but being on the back of a horse sometimes scares me. Unless there's somebody in front, unless it's one of those that you're dropping in quarters. <laughs> I, I'm okay with that kind of a horse. You know, it goes around in circles. I'm okay with, with that kind of a horse. But here we are, the church coming back with Christ. By the way, you're not going to have to get involved in the hand-to-hand combat. There isn't going to be any hand-to-hand combat. All of you that served in the military, you won't have to get, there won't be any more weapons you have to carry in order to defeat the enemy that's risen up against Christ. You're coming back and you're going to see all of this unfold. And you're going to be there for the the opportunity to witness the coronation of the king when he establishes his kingdom with all of the saints of the church age. Verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You see who is destroying? The Antichrist, the nations that have gathered with the Antichrist to fight against uh, the coming Christ. Uh, They're all going to meet in the Middle East. There's just one final conflict. Uh, that Christ in his second coming will put down, and he'll do it by the sword of his mouth. You know what that means? That means by the words that he speaks. He doesn't have to battle in the sense that we think of fighting. not going to have to you know, shoot tomahawk missiles from off of a ship out in the ocean and try to hit a target, or can hit a target, you know, hundred, hundreds of miles away. He isn't going to have to do that. He speaks the word, and the enemy is instantaneously destroyed. Verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every time I read that, I can't help but think of Philippians 2, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And he comes with this robe with his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Wow. Please note that the supper that's described here is different from the marriage supper of the Lamb. Actually, 
In my estimation, I don't think the marriage supper of the Lamb has taken place yet. Until he's put down his enemies, then the marriage supper takes place. The marriage has taken place, but the marriage supper hasn't taken place. This particular supper is of the enemies, and he calls the birds. He calls the birds to come and to feast off of the carcasses of those who have been destroyed, who rose up to fight against him when he defeated them in battle. Verses 19 to 21. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet. Now notice, who's the beast? That's the Antichrist. Remember the false prophet? He's out uh, doing the, the bidding of the Antichrist. So then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which, the dece- by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Who are the first two that are cast into the lake of fire? It's the Antichrist. It's the false prophet. And a little bit later, it'll be Satan himself. The Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into this lake of fire. These two were cast into the lake of fire with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with his flesh. So let's just stop here for a moment. You do realize that people who have died without Jesus are not in their final resting place for eternity. You do realize that there is a resurrection, not only of believers, but later there is a resurrection of all unbelievers. It's a thousand years at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the millennial period, but there is a, there is a resurrection of all unbelievers. Where are unbelievers today who die without Jesus? They're in a place called Hades. That is not purgatory. Purgatory is a place where you go to pay off some of your sins until you can get out. In Hades, you never get out. It is a place of suffering. It is a place of torment. It is a place of punishment. Luke 16, 23 is just one evidence of that. But there's going to be a day, we're going to read it next, in the next chapter, chapter 20, when Hades will give up all that are in it. And Hades will be cast into what is the final destination of all unbelievers, the unbelieving, and that's the lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever and forever and forever. And they will be incarcerated there with the Antichrist, and they'll be incarcerated there with the false prophet. And when you get to chapter 20, you'll see that they're going to be incarcerated there with Satan himself. It's, it's a terrible judgment for us to have to think about when we think about unbelievers sep- being separated from God forever. But when you read in uh, some of the modern translations, when I read from my New King James Version, a lot of times it'll talk to say, Hades, Hades, What's, what in the world is Hades? That's really not hell as we think of it. The lake of fire is. Hades is a temporary place of punishment for the souls of men and women who rejected Jesus Christ that will one day give up even those that are in it. And all of them, judged by their works, will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. But I don't want to end on that note. I want to end on the note that Jesus is the victor. 
Uh, Jesus is the one who's coming to destroy his enemies. Jesus is the one who's coming to put down the insurrection that has risen against them. Jesus is the one who's coming to avenge the death of the martyrs. Jesus is the one who is coming to call his bride out and to prepare a beautiful place. He has prepared a beautiful place for her. And there's going to be a marriage supper. And at that marriage supper, saints from the Old Testament and saints that come out of the tribulation, that live through the tribulation and don't die, they're going to come out and they're going to come in that first part of the, 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 uh, the millennium, uh, first, first part of the kingdom, to be a part of that marriage supper with us. And they'll get to be a part of the party that we're all going to enjoy. I'm ready for that party. Are you ready for it? I'm ready for it. Jesus is the victor. That's the bottom line. If, if you didn't know, read the last chapter of the book. We, all, we, we, we always come out winning. It, it looks like we're losing sometimes. But the fact of the matter is, um, we're, we're, we're on the winning team. I, I can't quit by saying that, though. That almost sounds like I'm gleeful that there's a lot of people that are dying and going to hell, and I never want to come across that way. I'm happy that I'm one of those that isn't going to be in hell, but I'm super unhappy that there are many that are going to be, and we must do all we can to reach them before they find themselves in that horrible place, the lake of fire.